Yeah, well, good morning, everyone. Again, welcome, welcome to Midtown. Good to see you guys enjoying each other's company. Uh, my name is Justin, one of the pastors here, and we're going to continue our series through Psalms. Uh, we've got this week and next week will be our last two. Um, but before I do, I wanted to give a couple of announcements. Um, first, they didn't know we we're going to do this, but we want to. We want to honor Megan and Zoheb. Could you guys stand? This is their last Sunday with us. Let's give them a hand. Thanks, guys. Zoheb was on staff with us, and when you heard jo- Joanna tell her story about her connection with international students, they were really the ones that got this whole program started. And so we uh, want to carry it on as best as we can and want to honor you guys and, and thank you for uh, your service here at Midtown. We're going to miss you for sure. That's uh, some sad news. Then we've got some happy news. We've got an engaged couple, James and Shelby. Where is she? You've got to stand by yourself. <laughs> Shelby and James got engaged, so there she is, so y'all can uh, make sure to say, say hello to them, too. Um, always fun to celebrate those things uh, with each other and to uh, send each other off well. Um, we're going to continue our series in Psalms. Uh, one more quick update um, on the Baker School, our Baker Center here. Uh, many of you, most everyone knows that the school informed us that they've sold this building, so we're looking for a new place to meet. Real quick update is that we did a prayer walk around Lee Elementary, which is where we really hoped that we could land. Uh, We left a voicemail with their principal and haven't heard back. So we take that to mean there's more time to pray. So join us in continuing to pray, and the the school, this this place hasn't kicked us out yet, so we've got a little bit more time, and that just means more time to pray, so continue to do that with us. We've been talking about the Psalms, and one of the ways that I've been telling us that I think that I like to look at Psalms, I think is helpful, is to look at it like a playlist. And the cool thing is that there's a psalm for every occasion. So as you read the book of Psalms, it hits on all these different emotions and different ways that you're looking at people connect with God in their prayer lives and their worship lives. And we've said, like, sometimes we're going to actually teach one of these psalms and it's going to be like, God, just, you're sitting here and you're like, man, this was just for me because this is a psalm for this season of my life. And other times it might be like, that was a great Sunday, not necessarily for me right now, but I'm going to store it away, like I like to call it like a playlist And I know next time I'm in this situation, this is a psalm that I can run back to. And we've also been encouraging you to think about memorizing just one verse. And so I hope even as I teach today that there might be one verse that you say, yeah, this is the most meaningful one to me. And this week, I'm just going to memorize this one verse. So I hope that you guys would do that. The verse that I think kind of summarizes this one in Psalm 2 is, why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot and plan in vain? And so I call this actually kind of a psalm for every occasion. So I said there's psalms for different occasions. This one's kind of an all-encompassing psalm because it's a psalm that's written to someone that is looking out on the world and is maybe distraught by the nations, distraught by the things that are happening in the world. And so in that sense, this is a psalm we could go to a lot, right? And the psalmist is asking, why is this happening in the world? And it's actually a, a, a pretty cool psalm because David wrote it. It doesn't say that David wrote it. But as you uh, read the New Testament, Peter and Paul will refer to David as having been the one written it. So we know that David actually wrote it. Another way that this psalm was thought that it was like a a coronation type of psalm. So like when someone would come into power as a king, this would be a psalm as a king that would be read over them or sung over them. And so look at it that way. And the last thing I'll say, and this is what makes this psalm tricky, so I need your prayers today. It's also a messianic psalm. So it's a psalm that David wrote, but he was prophesying without maybe even knowing it. And the New Testament authors pick back up on it, and they see Jesus right in the middle of the psalm. And so that makes it a little tricky. So I'm going to need prayer, and we're going to need prayer just that God will give us wisdom to understand. So why don't I pray for us? 
Father, we are uh, just humbled by your word that you can use something prophetic, something thousands of years in the past that is meaningful for us today, and not only that was prophetic to the coming of Jesus. And so we ask God for your favor to interpret this in our times. Um, We invite you, Holy Spirit, just to speak to each person individually as you do so well, knowing everyone's heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read. I should have said two. This is broken up in four three-verse stanzas. So if you look at it like a poem, there's three verses, four stanzas, with each with three verse, and each actually have a different voice. So we start here, the first three verses, the first stanza is the voice of the nations. It says this, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's break their chains and throw off their shackles. The first voice is the voice of the nations. What the author's doing is describing the sinfulness of the people, the people and their rebellion against God, both individually, but rulers especially, and whole nations that continue to selfishly seek their own ends. That's the nature of sin, and he's crying out, why is this happening in the world, and why, rulers, are you trying to do and put yourself above God? In our days, we might ask a question like, why is Russia meddling in elections? Or why are the Sunnis and the Shiite Muslims always fighting each other? Or why is ISIS terrorizing so many countries with their attacks? Or why is our nation so divided politically? Or why has the world allowed what's happening in Syria to go on and on without finding a way to end it? Or why do nations involve themselves in the affairs of other nations and then some they just disregard and don't intervene? These are the type of questions that we can ask all the time because we live in a world with 7.5 billion people, 195 sovereign countries. And so these things are going to continue to happen. And like the psalmist, we can join with them and say, why, God? But he wasn't really asking why, like, I need to know the answer. You can see that he knows the answer. The answer was that ultimately people are rebellious against God. That's the very nature of sin, that we would put ourselves above God Instead of trusting Him to be our God, Him to be our King, and trusting Him to provide for us and to give us all that we need, the sinfulness of our hearts makes us always putting ourselves back above God, trying to have our own ways and our own rule, thinking that we have to provide for ourselves and we have to protect ourselves. It's the nature of man. It's the nature of rulers. It's the nature of nations because they're comprised of sinful people. This is the story of civilization, really. If you look through uh, the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11 has some of the richest theology about the theology of God, the theology of man, and even the theology of civilizations as you see civilizations begin to form. And one story that stuck out as I was reading Psalm 2 was the the story of the the Tower of Babel. You can find it in Genesis 11. And here's what the people in this, this place of Babel, what they said. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar and mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered in the face of the whole earth. You see, with the first civilization, one of these first civilizations tried to do is they tried to protect themselves and let's build and let's do things for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. Their fear of being scattered, their fear of other peoples made them isolate made them try to make a name for themselves instead of submitting to God as their God. And so has it been from civilization to civilization to civilization. Evil among the nations. They're saying, like this nation says here, 
Let us be free of God. Let us break off our shackles. And so in this coronation psalm that would be read over kings, the first question that is being asked is, kings, why are you trying to make a name for yourselves? Why are you trying to put yourself above God? Why not just submit to God? Why do the nations rage? The second voice is in the second stanza, and this is actually the voice of God. And here's what God says. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The first thing you see from the voice of God is God reminds them that he's the one that's on the throne. Look at how it starts. The one, the God, the one that is enthroned. There may be 195 nations. There may be 195 rulers. There may be hundreds of rulers throughout history, but none of them is on the throne. God is reminding them, I'm the one that's in control. You have no power if it weren't apart from me. He's reminding every nation, you have no power were it not for me. I'm God. I'm the one on the throne. It's one of the very few scriptures where you actually find God laughing. You guys are plotting and scheming, trying to make a name for yourself. I just laugh it off because you don't get it. I'm God. I'm the one that's in control of all the nations. We do well to listen to this verse in Romans 13, though it's hard to take in. Paul writes in Romans 13, let everyone be subject to govern authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Don't get lost on the fact that Paul is writing Christians in a very oppressive Roman-ruled time in history. He's telling them that God's the one who appointed these rulers that are over you, that God is above all of them. I know I find this uh, particularly difficult and something that maybe we should really press into and that our hearts believe. Because in this political climate, if you're like me, many of my friends were, have been just distraught at what's, who's been elected at various times. Eight years ago, many of my friends were on the exact same side, distraught about what was happening. And while I'm not saying there's not room for, for heartfelt feelings, I want to be real about that. But I would question some of my friends sometimes because it seemed like an irrational anxiety and fear, one that made me think they don't really believe that God's on the throne, that no matter who's in charge, they're not, because God is bigger, God is better, and we may not know His plans, we may not even deserve to know them, they might make sense to us even if He were to reveal them, but God is bigger than whoever's in charge of our country or any other country. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that, that you have to agree with whoever's in authority. I'm also not saying, definitely not saying that God's in favor of those that he puts in authority. I'm saying simply that God is over every single push person that he's put in authority. God rules the nations and every single leader. That's exactly what this psalm was about. And why it's about it? It's because the next thing that God says here, God has already made a king. God's got a favorite. God's made Jesus king. He's the only one that gets to rule. He's the only one that's righteous. He's the only one that gets to be in charge of everything. And God gives Jesus the kingdom. Now, this is where it requires a little bit of uh, understanding. You have to go back, really, to the Davidic covenant. When you read this part in uh, this psalm, that I've installed my king in Zion, what, what the Israelites reading in that day would have known, they would have known that they were talking prophetically about this king 
because God had promised David that there was always going to be a king that would rule, and it would be from David's line. And so all the Israelites believed this, and they were, they were seeking God and awaiting, actually, the day that Jesus would come, the Messiah would come as a king. So if you go back to the Davidic covenant, you find it in 2 Samuel 7. God says this to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up from your offspring one to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And get this last phrase, this is going to come up again, I will be his father and he will be my son. This is the Davidic covenant that God promised and all of Israel was hoping and waiting for this day that a Messiah would come. So much so that when the book of Matthew is written, the book of Matthew starts with just a complete genealogy of Jesus, tracing it all the way back to Abraham, tracing it all the way back to David. So in Matthew 1.14, we would read this. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. That Jesus' birth was prophesied hundreds of years before by David, and by many others. There was a promise of a king. And even after David's life has continued to be prophetically spoken through many of the prophets. I'll just read one more from you. From Isaiah chapter 9, another messianic prophecy. You'll recognize it as a Christmas verse. For, from, uh, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the greatest of the government of peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What these verses are pointing to is the fact that there is a king. And while there's many kings of different nations, God has already said, I've got my king. Jesus is king. I've established it. I've prophesied it from decades and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years in the past. And here he is. And he's coming at first as a child. But one day will come again and his rule will be complete. We have a king. One of my favorite things about this psalm too is to see that the way that Peter and John actually understood this psalm in light of things that were happening at the, when the church was just being birthed. We're going to go to Acts 4 in a minute, but I've got to kind of tell you a little story beforehand. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John perform like a healing, and this, blind, this uh, lame man is healed, and it causes such an uproar, and many people put their faith in Christ and begin following, and, and the religious leaders of that day take Peter and John away, and they, they try to imprison them and tell them they can't talk about Jesus anymore. They actually say, well, judge for yourselves whether it's right for us to do that or not, but we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. And they ultimately agree that it's best strategic for them to actually let Peter and John go. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if I was in that case, I would maybe run back to my fellow believers and start planning a way to get out of there or planning a way to bring justice upon these leaders, worried about what they might do next. But instead, what you find in, in, in Acts chapter 4 is this beautiful time of prayer where they come back to the believers and immediately they go to prayer. I mentioned that Psalms are like a playlist. We don't know exactly what happened, but I'm imagining Peter and John making their way back to this prayer gathering, to meet with the believers and thinking, what psalm do we need right now? What psalm would speak truth over this situation? And then you see them gather to pray, and where do they go to? They go directly to this psalm, Psalm 2. In Acts chapter 4, verse 25, this is how they start their prayer when they gathered it back together again. 
and say, you spoke through your Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our Father. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Do you see how they use this psalm, how pretty it is, how beautiful it is? That they go back to it and they remember that God is above these authorities. God is so sovereign that he took what looked like the worst thing in all of history, the crucifixion of Christ, and God turned it on their heads and used it for good. Our God is the ruler of all nations. Our God is the ruler even over Pontius Pilate and Herod, the Jews and the Gentiles. It says they all four conspired. They were like the nations raging, plotting, planning, making a way to end Christ's life. But he died. He rose again because he is the king. I was thinking about the story the other day when I was talking with uh, my former pastor, Rob Harrell, um, at, at Austin Oaks Church. He's no longer pastoring there. But he's been doing a lot of mission work and going to places to visit the Syrian refugees. And he told me just some incredible stories of how God uses something awful for good. I just asked him, would you write one of them for me? And here's what he wrote me this week. Here's a good story to tell, Justin. So if we were in the USA and wanted to reach Syrian Muslims for Christ, how would you go about it? We'd probably send some seminary, someone to seminary for three years, then to language school for three years, then to Damascus to build relationships with people there, and then maybe seven, eight years, we might be able to win one or two to Christ. How is God doing this instead? He allows a civil war in Syria where both Syrian Christians and Syrian Muslims are displaced. They find themselves in a refugee camp in Lebanon, western Iraq, or in Jordan. Then Jesus shows up in a dream to a Syrian Muslim living in the refugee camp. Not knowing what to make of the dream and not knowing who Jesus is, what Jesus is trying to say, the Syrian Muslim goes across the way to their Syrian Christian friend and asks them to interpret the dream about Jesus. The Christian Syrian refugee who speaks the same Arabic language shares the good news of Jesus with the Muslim Syrian neighbor. Oh, the ways of God. I met no less than 20 people who had this testimony in Lebanon. One lady, a Syrian Muslim refugee chemical engineer, had this very experience after being raped by an oppressive Lebanese man, losing her husband to an industrial accident, Jesus showed up in a dream. I met this woman personally and heard her story. I also met the Christian Syrian teacher who explained her dream about Jesus to her and shared the gospel and led her to saving faith in Jesus. They now work together in a Christian school for Syrian refugees, a former Muslim engineer now running the bookstore and a Christian Syrian teacher. And crazy, some of the kids that they teach and interface with have parents who are involved with ISIS. That sounds like a Psalm 2 story, doesn't it? I'm not saying the ends justify any means, but I'm asking us just to have a higher view to believe that God is above all leaders. He's above all nations in working things for his sovereign good like he did in Acts, like he's doing today. The third stanza is Jesus speaking. This is where it gets a little tricky. It says this, <clears throat> I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said. You are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them with pieces, like pieces of pottery. Now, this is the Lord's decree. What he says when he said, remember this is a messianic psalm. This is the way that the New Testament authors interpret it, like we'll, I'll show you in a minute. 
but he's saying, he said to me, this is now Jesus' voice, Jesus saying, God the Father said this to me, you are my son, today I've become your father. This idea of of becoming a son and being a father, this identification was like the coronating act. It was like the, yes, you are the next in line. You are my king. You have to go back to the Davidic covenant. I think we can pull back up uh, 2 Samuel 7. Remember what God spoke to David, and at the very end, he said, I will establish your throne and your kingdom forever, and I will be his father, and he will be my son. It's the same language. This is God initiating with Jesus his work and his kingship and coming in the form of a baby, coming in the form of a man to enter earth. Now, certainly, Jesus existed. We know that we're not going to get into this today, but Jesus is eternal. The Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit have dwelt with each other from all eternity past. Yet there was a day, like the Scripture calls it today, when Jesus entered earth and His plan began to make Him our King. So Jesus is eternal. This was His coronation, and the long-awaited Son had come. This is the way that Paul interpreted it. So Paul is actually in Antioch teaching to some of the very first Gentile believers. And when he's speaking to them, listen to what he says, how he actually goes back to this exact same psalm. In Acts chapter 13, he says, We tell you good news. What God promised our ancestors, he's fulfilled to us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, he's going right back here. You are my son. Today I've become your father. And God raised him from the dead, and he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. What Paul's proclaiming to some of these very first Gentile believers is this long-awaited one that we as Jews have been hoping for. He's going to be made king, and he came to earth, and he lived and died. And now I'm proclaiming you the good news, that if you put your faith in Christ for forgiveness of your sins, that you too can be part of this kingdom that he died and that he rose again and now he's establishing his kingdom and he's on the throne right now. This is what Paul's preaching. Going back to Psalm 2, recognizing this was a messianic psalm. There's another thing that the psalm says. It says that Jesus has been given all authority over all nations. So in this, God the Father, again speaking to Jesus, Jesus is quoting what God said. God the Father said, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. He's telling him that, Jesus, you get to reign over all of it. I've made you my king, and I've put you over all nations. And this is ultimately why Jesus came. Jesus came to save people from every single tribe and tongue and nation in the world. This is what he spoke to his disciples in Matthew 24. He said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. These same nations that are raging, these same people that are raging and conspiring against God, that's the very place where Jesus is going. Jesus came to earth to get the gospel to all people, to all nations that all might believe, even the very nations that are conspiring against him. Think about Psalm 2 and how God the Father said to Jesus, ask me for the nations, and then think about what he said, his last words to his disciples before he ascended to his throne. Matthew 28, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You see, he received the promise. He received it from God. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. 
and surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. This is where it's exciting and scary because the way that God is taking the gospel to all nations is through us. It's through the disciples. It's his last words. All authority has been given to me. God's granted it. I'm king. But now I'm sending you out to go do the work. It's amazing that God would trust us with that. That's why when we say with our vision that we envision the day when every man, woman, child would hear the gospel from someone who loves them, we mean it. Like we want to do this with Jesus. We want to go to all nations. We're so excited to have people like the Courages or the Vegas or Aiden or Holly Mather, whom I spoke with this week and got to share the gospel with one of her new friends in Indonesia. Like, that's what we're about. I like that psalms are often made into songs. I think you actually heard last week or heard from the, from the worship team that next week all of our songs are going to be directly from psalms. This would be kind of a weird one to try to make a song to, though, right? But someone did. It's a, a great guy named Rich Mullins. Uh, some of you may know him. He was an artist kind of more like in the 80s and 90s. Um, wonderful uh, writer. And here's what he wrote from Psalm 2. This is one of his songs. I won't sing it. I'll read it. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot and scheme? Their bullets can't stop the prayers we pray in the name of the Prince of Peace. We walk in faith and remember long ago how they killed him and then how on the third day he arose. Well, things may look bad. Things may look grim. But all these things must pass except the things that are of him. The Lord in heaven laughs. He knows what is to come. While all the chiefs of state plan their big attacks against his anointed one. The church of God, she will not bend her knees. To the gods of this world do they promise her peace. She stands her ground, stands firm on the rock, watches walls tumble down when she lives out his love. Where are the nails that pierced his hand? Well, the nails have turned to rust, but behold the man. He has risen and he reigns in the hearts of the children raising up in his name. Where are the thorns that drew his blood? Well, the thorns have turned to dust, but not so the love he has given. No, it remains in the hearts of the children who will love while the nations rage. Jesus is over all the earth, but he and his grace allows us to be part of getting his kingdom, his kingship to all the earth. Let's join him in that. And finally, we have this last voice. The last voice is actually the voice of David. Last stanza, therefore you kings, be wise and warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun or he'll be angry with you and your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Quite simply, this last voice just says, be warned and serve and worship Jesus. Be warned. <laughs> be humbled by the fact that God is above all, and at any moment, he could take you down. Any moment, king, any moment, ruler, God could take you out. Be warned. He can humble you. But it also says so beautifully, serve and worship Jesus. Serve the Lord with fear, and I love this, celebrate his rule. Celebrate his rule. Like we can come under his kingship and celebrate it. Celebrate that he's God and we can stop putting ourselves above God and come under him and submit to his lordship in our lives. I'll close by telling two, two quick stories, uh, biblical stories of kings. Since this is a psalm about kings, 
The first is a negative example of King Herod. It's found in Acts 13. It says, On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on a throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of God, not a man. But immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Be warned. Or you take Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. A little longer story here, but he, Nebuchadnezzar, said this, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal resident by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as these words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what's decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live like wild animal. You'll eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass before, or seven pass until you acknowledge that the Most High is a sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and give them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My sanity was restored, and I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar chose to kiss the sun. He chose to worship and celebrate God's rule. Naturally, none of us are rulers, right? But this isn't just apply to rulers. This applies to all of us. So I'd ask you, will you try to plot and scheme your way through life in rebellion to God? Or will you acknowledge Him as King and live under His rule in your life? That's the invitation to make Him your King, to be like Nebuchadnezzar and say, yes, you're above all. I want to offer that invitation to you by praying a simple prayer that if perhaps you've never prayed that before, never asked God to rule your life, that you can do that even now. And even those of you who have and have put your faith in Christ, this can be a way for you to remind yourself and also pray that God would be more of the rule in your life. After I pray, we're going to take communion. The way that we take communion here at at Midtown is it's open communion. Anyone can come. But we ask if you've not yet put your faith in Christ that that you would wait and that you would do that at a time when you have. You can come down the center here or in the back to receive it and sit um, at your chairs, take at any time while the worship is taking place. Let me end by by praying this prayer. I'll mention too that John and Shelby are going to be back in the back. Uh, We have prayer team members that like to pray for people. And so if you have any need, whether related to anything I said today or or anything going on in your life, they would love to pray with you. Um, But let me pray and give you a chance to pray with me. Father, we just acknowledge your rule, that you're over all nations. And it's okay that we're, we're dumbfounded by that, that we can't get our heads fully around it. That wouldn't, that's what makes you worshipful, because you're beyond our understanding. That we thank you that you've made yourself so well known by coming in the person of Jesus. We ask that you would use us to Establish your rule in the world and the places that you've scattered us, even this week. And we ask that we would submit to your rule. And now I'll just pray a simple prayer. And if, 
If you want to pray it for the first time, you can just pray it in your heart. God knows your heart. Uh, God, I confess that I am sinful and I've made myself out to be God. I come to you and, and ask for forgiveness and receive the forgiveness uh, through Jesus' death and resurrection on my behalf. I want to submit myself to your rule and ask that you would be king in my heart. In Jesus' name, amen.